Good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is Chandler Baker, the New York Times bestselling author of The Whisper Network, a novel about relationships, about women in the corporate world, about harassment, and about mystery. Chandler, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you so much for having me. So your writing career was chugging along very successfully as a YA writer, but then you chose to write this novel, which is more for adults. What made you want to make that switch? I always told myself that I would just follow the idea and figure out what age bracket it fit into uh, afterwards, but I hadn't really sort of tested uh, that that theory until this book. Um, when I started writing, I when I started writing seriously, sort of with publication in mind, uh, I was a junior in college, and I had just kind of rediscovered reading for pleasure and uh, was coming up in sort of a young adult literature renaissance with uh, books like from John Green and Lauren Oliver and, uh, so many wonderful books coming out of the time, Gail Foreman. Um, so it felt very natural that what kind of percolated from there were young adult books. And I was much closer to that, that age range at that time too, and was enjoying sort of, uh, picking apart how I felt in high school. Uh, now I think that I'm very involved in, you know, my own book club and reading a lot of women's fiction, reading a lot of thrillers, reading a lot of domestic suspense. Uh, so I, I, I think it also made sense that uh, an idea marinated from there. And uh, I just was eager to kind of talk more about what I was experiencing at, at this moment in my life rather than, than looking back at YA, which is not to say I've abandoned YA completely because I don't think I have. Um, but, but it's been really refreshing kind of to, to get to do this, this new thing, six books in. Yeah. Yeah. So the, your YA novels have, um, elements of horror and the supernatural. So just the, the nature of this book, even before you decided who the audience was, is a, is a pretty big turn from that. What, what was your first impetus for this novel? What, what, sort of started you down this road? Sure. Um, I mean, I, like a lot of women, uh, as the Me Too movement unfolded, I mean, someone, so many of us were talking about, you know, what we had experienced, what we hadn't experienced, how we'd handled it, how we wish we'd handled it. Um, and, you know, I started thinking about what, what whisper networks and what the Me Too movement looked like within the legal community, because I'm a corporate attorney by trade. And, uh, so, so I started wondering how it would, how it would play out, um, and what I had to say about it. And at the same time, I was also thinking, I'm so glad that we have sort of this national spotlight on sexual harassment, which clearly exists in the workplace. I wonder how that's going to evolve, but also wait, wait, while we have your attention, you know, we want to talk about all these other 
particularities of the working woman experience Mm -hmm. um, and sort of the the difficulties that are innate there that aren't even completely related to sexual harassment. Uh, So I just started thinking through my own experiences and seeing what I could parse um, and also sort of imagining a world, uh, you know, a couple steps down the Me Too movement line where corporations might start to fight back a little bit. Yeah, I love the the insights you give. I mean, I I have neither worked at the corporate in the corporate world nor obviously am I a woman. And you just, you know, these things that you just that I don't think about that I thought you articulated so well like just simply the difference in time that it takes a woman in the corporate world to go from waking up to being at work. Versus a man, you know, in terms of all the things she has to do to get ready that a man doesn't necessarily have to do. And I was like, oh, wow, that's like a huge drain on your time. It is. It really is. It's amazing. And, you know, it's so much of this stuff that I think that we take for granted, even as women, uh, and then to kind of try to start to sit down and put some vocabulary around it. Uh, it's been it's been fun hearing women's stories sort of piggybacking on what I've said in the book as well. Yeah, You start out with two things that I've seen actually quite a bit of lately and have spoken with other authors about. The first is a prologue, and the second is uh, the second person. Now, you don't stay in the second person for very long, but I want to read the very first sentence of the book because it's in the second person. Um, If you'd listened to us, none of this would have happened. I wonder if you could talk about First of all, why you decided to start the book in the second person, and second of all, why what a prologue does, especially to the sort of mystery and tension of the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a sucker for playing with format and structure. I I love to have some sort of breaks in format uh, as I'm writing a book. It just keeps it really fun for me. Um, I think one thing that having the prologue did as well as sort of the, I call them interstitials, but where it breaks format to have sort of the, um, depositions and eyewitness accounts and those kind of things is it bought me a little bit of time, right? I wanted the reader to know right away that something goes really, really wrong here (laughs) to be able to have time to sort of parse out how it happened and, and get to the meat of some of uh, some of this dialogue I wanted to have about women in the workplace. Um, so it was important to me for pacing and I think it makes the reading experience more enjoyable in terms of why I chose to kind of have a Greek chorus. Uh, it really started out that I, um, was just hearing stories from so many of my friends and colleagues and thought the voice, thought the book deserved a, voice beyond the characters in the novel and beyond me. I wanted to have sort of this collective voice for women. Um, and, and now as I've, I've written and thought about it, I also see, uh, the problems in corporate America for women as a very collective problem and, um, sort of when one of us fails, all of us fails, that's been sort of the traditional wisdom. Um, but I think we also need to approach it as a collective solution. And I know I've been talking to women and thinking about myself, just being more conscious about how we talk about other women at our workplace, not feeling in competition with them, um, and really approaching it from a place a place of we. So I think it's, it's made more and more sense to me, you know, the longer I've spent with the book. 
Yeah, yeah. So you you alluded to your sort of Greek chorus, and and for readers who haven't read the book yet, um, every now and then you go into the first person plural. You say we did this or we do that, um, and you return to that for commentary as the novel goes on, and often use that to point out things that we all really should know, but most of us don't know about the double standard for men and women in the workplace, as we were talking about before. Uh, how can you be sure, you know, you talk about your, you have a woman's book group and you're writing books for women, and, but how can we be sure both in your novel and in the wider world that the people who really need to hear that voice will listen to what it has to say? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, I think that's what you're kind of getting at with the prologue and the you, and also in the epilogue sort of speaks to people to listen. Um, but of course, the difficulty is getting men in particular involved in the discussion. So many uh, women read this and say, you know, yes, this is exactly what it's like. This is so true. You know, I wish my male colleagues would read this. Um, and do I think that there's just droves of men reading this book? Probably not. Um, but you know, I hope we've put it in sort of a juicy, fun to read, murderous package that can appeal to both genders and that, you know, it's kind of like a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, I hope, in terms of getting people to listen to the message. Well, and I think you do a nice job of balancing the message with, you know, it's, it, I don't want our readers to, our listeners to feel like that this is a preachy book. This is, this is a thriller that moves along at a very good clip and, and keeps you guessing and keeps you excited. Um, but I do have to think that like, for for women readers, especially those who've been in the corporate world, it must feel like a validation. Whereas for men, it must feel a little bit more like a revelation, but a revelation that that's very necessary. You know. Yeah, I hope it feels more like a revelation than an admonition. Uh, I know that people can feel defensive if they don't realize that something's been going on between under their noses, basically at work, um, or you know, they can just feel a little bit put on their heels by it. So it's okay for us all to be learning about this, you know, together. I also love the way that, that, um, those little, as you call them, those Greek chorus moments, um, sort of reflect on the title because, you know, the whisper network is this network of women who sort of whisper things to each other at work, but also by, by using that, we, you really sort of include the reader in the whisper network and it it becomes a, 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 a way of um, making the reader part of that that intimate circle. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think that's that also gets to what you're saying about reaching the people that need to hear it. I mean, one of the commentaries in the book as part of the Greek chorus is that whispers only you know reach so far. That's sort of the nature of whispers that you're trying to keep it within an intimate circle. You're not allowing everyone to hear it. Um, and so while whisper networks certainly are aimed to keep other women safe traditionally, uh, not everyone has sort of the same system systemic protections or the access to the same information. Uh, so, so yeah, we're kind of including everyone in the conversation, but it's only the people that are reading the book, right? Or it's only the people that are part of the whisper network that get the information. Um, and that's, you know, that, that can be, that can be harmful to people that don't have access to the same information. Right, right. So we've been we've been talking about your your craft at the opening a little bit. We've been talking about themes, but now tell us the basic setup of the Whisper Network. Give us give us your elevator pitch. 
Sure. It's about uh, four women, uh, Grace, Artie, Sloan, and Rosalina, who have been working at a company for a long time. And their boss, a man who's sort of always been surrounded by rumors, is poised to become the company's next CEO. And the book covers what happens uh, when the women sort of decide that enough is enough and the catastrophic shift that takes place on every floor of the office uh, and beyond when, when they decide to take action. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned um, a, a few minutes ago about using uh, sort of documentary storytelling uh, features. Uh, this is something I saw recently in the works of uh, an English mystery writer named Kara Hunter, who I interviewed, and I, I like the way she did it, and I love the way that you do it, too. You have um, depositions and statements and other documents that come in. Can, can you talk about how those are incorporated and, and especially about what it's like to write in, in different forms and with different voices. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So every, every so often there's uh, a break in format where it will be either a, uh, some eyewitness accounts, a p- police interrogation, uh, primarily depositions, uh, questioning about an incident that happens in the book and trying to unpack it. Um, so, you know, for each one that I wrote, it, it took quite a long time because I wanted each of them to say something either about the plot or to make a larger point about gender politics. Uh, and I wanted them to feel like they had a punchline almost. So I would spend kind of a lot of time writing longhand writing around, uh, what I wanted to, to aim at for each of those. Um, and, and they were, they were a lot of fun to, because they can be a little bit quippier, um, and they can have that sort of snappy back and forth. I mean, they're all dialogue. There's no, uh, there's no description interspersed in them. So the reader can really fly through those pages, which as a reader, I think is, is fun when, when I see breaks in format like that. One of the things I like the way you use them at the end of the chapter to sort of ratchet up the the tension, and a lot of times it, it becomes this um, this commentary of you thought you knew what was going on in this chapter, but wait, let us give you a hint that things are not exactly what they seem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, it was, it, and it was a challenge trying to make sure that they you know did have something to do with the chapter the revelations that came in the chapters before and make sure that we were building on the story and not just, um, not doing something just to try to make suspense that doesn't pay off. Sure. Sure. Early in the book, you write that grace and I'm quoting here still clung to the notion that someone could be a good person despite their actions as though actions weren't the very indicator of one's person. Why do you think so many people still have this attitude and, and do you think there's a way for us to to shake that off and yet still be fair to somebody who who may have done some good things but has also done some bad things? <laughs> That's a good question. I you know that I that line came from uh, a person in my social circle <laughs> that uh, that you know we have some friends in common and you know I have a friend that constantly sort of defends him so I was like I really think he's a good person he just does all these terrible things I'm like what is the difference <laughs> why are we defending this um, and 
that's always been a little bit difficult for me to see. Not that people can't change, not that people can't be a little bit of both. I think that what we've seen in the Me Too movement, I thought what as I was writing Ames, I thought a lot about like Matt Lauer. Um, he has done, I mean, we've seen revelations the last couple of weeks. He's yeah. done some really terrible things, but I think we also saw that his, co- his female co-anchors, that was not the experience that they had with him. You know, they had had largely positive experiences with him. And does that get erased just because, um, you know, what they find out? I mean, it, it it does erase whether or not he was a good person, but, uh, it doesn't erase sort of their memory with them and the feeling that they are blindsided by it. Um, in terms of how to parse out whether someone can be a good person just because they've done good things. I mean, I think it's, it's really case by case. I think you see someone like Aziz Ansari that, you know, did some not great things, but, personally been impressed with some of his analysis and growth from it and what he's put out in the world after what he was accused of. And, you know, I don't know these people personally, but I think there's value in that commentary into the conversation that he is trying to be a part of. Um, so I, I do think it's case by case, but I, I think that too often, especially as women, we want to say, he doesn't know better or, um, (laughs) uh, you know, or he didn't mean it that way. Uh, and I think that that's giving a lot more thought to men's interiority than the men whose behaviors in question are giving to women's interiority. Uh, I mean, I always thought it it was interesting. I mean, you, you mentioned Matt Lauer and there's, there's certainly other cases like this where people will say, well, he never acted that way around me as if that was some sort of exoneration or justification, but you would never say like of a serial killer. Well, he never murdered me. Um, you know, um, so yeah, just, you know, so look, funny. look at all those women he didn't harass doesn't necessarily excuse, I think. Um, but yeah, it's, it is, it is interesting. I, and, and I interested to hear you say, you know, that you almost have to look at it on a, on a case by case basis. Um, Grace overhears two other employees talking about this list of names of men that have been accused of sexual misconduct. Uh, and one of her first thoughts when she hears that is, what about due process? She says those, says those exact words. How do we balance that need for due process and fairness against a system that for so long has protected men and, and hidden what's going on? Mm-hmm. I, it's, it's a really difficult ethical dilemma, I think, because one, when we see sort of these... Um, spreadsheets cropping up that are acting as whisper networks. Uh, they, it, they're not legal proceedings. So we don't actually owe some sort of due process, right? (laughs) Uh, in the same way we would proceedings that said they do have real world, uh, often financial and reputational consequences that I, that I think we have to be mindful of. Um, I'm seeing a few interesting sort of solves 
come up where um, in academia they are trying to sort of blind item them, give people enough information uh, where they are where there's someone in charge of trying to seek some validation to do an investigation on them before it's added to a spreadsheet, but also to make them a little bit more anonymous about the person accused, but provide enough information to protect the women in question. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. It seems like a big task to take on and not every work environment is going to have a body that wants to be in charge <laughs> of that task, you know? Um, so, so it, it's difficult. I mean, I think we have to start from a place of believing women while understanding that, um, you know, we do have to be, to be thoughtful and, uh, recognize nuance and be mindful of how we're framing the discussion. Yeah. Yeah. So as, as our listeners can tell from our conversation, this is a novel that's closely related to a particular social issue. It's, we might call it ripped from the headlines, but it doesn't feel like, like a lecture or a, you know, dry nonfiction exploration of this issue. How did you balance um, your desire to explore this issue with the needs of just telling a, a ripping good narrative? Um, I, I think I wanted to try to put the narrative first as much as possible. Uh, I certainly did a lot more cutting of any of sort of the Greek chorus stuff that I felt like was slowing down the plot. Um, any of those sort of observations that came up, uh, in the, in the text, I cut that down if I thought it was affecting pacing. Um, there's people better suited than me to write like a nonfiction expose about the me too movement and about whisper networks. That's not, you know, my aim or what I was trying to do. Someone asked if I was worried in an interview that like my book wouldn't be taken seriously enough because, or wouldn't be read enough because it was framed as a thriller, some read. And I'm like, no, I, I want it to be entertaining. I want people to want to read it. This isn't homework. And my, my hope is that people come into it for a thriller and leave having been a little bit smarter about the issues. Uh, that's the idea and to have conversations and good book club discussions about it. Uh, but definitely the story always came, came first and the pacing always came first and any, any sort of, of the observations, I wanted them to end on almost like an ominous tone to kind of fit still with the thriller narrative. They each have like their own little punchline, I think as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways people are, or a larger number of people are more likely to pick up a thriller than they are to pick up a serious nonfiction expose of a, of a social issue, you know? Um, and it, and the book does read like a thriller. Um, it just, the, you know, the, you set it in a particular environment that allows that issue to be a part of the book without really overtaking it. Um, the book also, to me, feels very much of the moment, not just because of the particular issue of sexual harassment in the workplace, but also because of cultural references. You mentioned Lean In and Shonda Rhimes and, and various <laughs> other. Uh, given the length of time it takes to produce a book, how do you decide how topical is too topical? 
yeah, it's, it's always tough because I think the topical references are fun and they can draw you in, but you don't want to immediately date the book. Uh, lean in is such a cultural touchstone, especially for working women that that in particular, I was not that afraid of, um, feeling dated. Cause I think that that's a discussion we're going to continue to have for quite a while. Same thing like Tina Fey. There's a lot of references to Tina Fey. Her book bossy pants, I think is continuing to sort of stand the test of time. I, and I be- think bossy pants will live forever. I love, yeah. <laughs> I love bossy pants. So I didn't feel that scared. Shonda Rhimes. She certainly is somebody that's making a lasting contribution. Um, and is an icon, I think for working women, an example of having, you know, an outstanding career. Uh, but, uh, you know, you can't, A, I wrote this book really, really fast. It actually went through production super quickly and I kind of knew that it was going to, so I didn't have to worry as much about Mm -hmm. the references being dated. Um, and I just tried to pick ones that I thought would had a shelf life of at least a few years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's very interesting that how the how that balance of is it going to go through the press quickly? Is it going to go through slowly? Um, I have a middle grades book that'll come out in twenty twenty one, but I started working on it in twenty sixteen. Early, oh in, early in the year, right? And so by the time I finally gave it to my agent, my agent was like, "Let's make this this character more Trumpian," you know. Uh-huh. Well, by the time it's published. Who knows? That might not be an issue anymore. So it, it's just funny how those how how the world and your publishing schedule sometimes line up and sometimes they don't line up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and sometimes you get really lucky because something you know you didn't even know was going to be sort of zeitgeisty becomes zeitgeisty, and sure, the opposite yeah, yeah. can happen as well. So always a calculated risk. Your book paints, at least to me as an outsider, a, a very realistic. Uh, picture of the corporate world. To what extent did you draw on your own work as a corporate attorney and and how did you how did you tread the the verge of, you know, using your own experiences without um, you know, exploiting the people that you worked with? Sure. I mean, it's, it's certainly all fictionalized, but I couldn't have written it without my experience of working as a corporate attorney. I did, I worked in a law firm and I set this in an in-house environment. So, I mean, I could certainly relate to the type of work they're doing, but it is a bit of a different uh, corporate structure than the law firm hierarchy that, that I'm used to. Um, and, I, I know that most people don't want to read a ton of legalese <laughs> and it was just kind of a constant battle of keeping the human aspects of the law and of the working environment, the ones that felt universal or inherently interesting and not getting too bogged down in the details of, of other legalese. Well, I mean, I, I do think that, um, we all we've talked about this on the show before. We all like uh, a story that sort of pulls back the curtain on a world that we don't know very much about. And so when you have when you have characters who are talking about contracts or something, and I don't if I don't necessarily understand exactly what they mean, what I do understand is like, okay, this author knows what she's talking about. She understands the world that we're in. I am I am in safe hands. Um, and so I think that that worked well. But I, I never felt like I was that my lack of knowledge of the corporate world was interfering with my ability to, to follow the story or understand what was going on. So, 
Well, good. I agree. I like to read about different worlds too, but only the most interesting aspects of them. Right. right. <laughs> One of your reviewers wrote, and I certainly agree with this, that the book is sprinkled with, quote, razor sharp insights about what it is to be a woman today. Is what it is to be a woman in America changing? And if so, is it changing fast enough? Is it changing in the right direction? Ooh, um, it, I think it is changing in the right direction, but also with some pitfalls. Um, I think that one thing I worry about is, um, with, with lean in in particular is yes, women are, you know, showing their ambition more. It's becoming more culturally acceptable to show our ambition, to ask for, you know, what we deserve to have those conversations, um, to have a career and a meaningful career. Uh, at the same time, I also worry that it's almost the lean in and like the hashtag girl boss culture, uh, has, almost become another narrative, like the beauty narrative and the, the wellness health narrative, um, and the fitness narrative, all these things that women sort of have to subscribe to already Pinterest momming, uh, all these different things. It's just like, it's one more thing on our plate to Mm. some extent. And I'm not sure that we're kind of getting things taken off our plate in equal measure, uh, often, you know, because of the division of labor at home, which I think sort of relates back to a nuanced take of the state of paternity leave in America. Uh, I think we're getting pieces of, of the puzzle in place. Um, but I still think we have a long way to go about like the root of the problems that make it difficult to quote unquote, have it all as a woman in America. Mm -hmm. Um, And also backlash of me too is, is concerning, you know, with like the Mike Pence rule, men not wanting to be alone in a room or invite women to business dinners. That kind of thing is very concerning to me because it's a backdoor way of not believing women or saying that women are too easily offended under the guise of paying attention to the me too movement, which is very troubling. Uh, you know, you talk about all the different things that can be on your plate, and I think you tap into a truth not just about parenting, but about living. When you write, um, you're talking about these many different schools of thought when it comes to parenting. And Sloan feels that she is expected, and this is a quote, expected to pluck one from the sky and go with it. Um, <laughs> do you think in, in the in our so-called information age that, to a certain extent, we suffer from too much information? Uh. Absolutely. I think it can be so daunting, especially as a parent to, you know, read all of these things that you should be doing or shouldn't be doing. Um, and kind of you almost, you know, you have access to the research to sort of drill down into the whys and maybe get more at it, but, uh, you don't have the time to do so. (laughs) So you're kind of pulling from, clickbait articles to some extent if you're really pressed. Um, and it's just, it's difficult to know if you're doing the right thing as a parent. So you do kind of have to just pluck something from the sky, give yourself a strategy and go with what works for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you challenge 
the truth of a lot of aphorisms that are repeated generation after generation. And one of those being that being a mother is the most wonderful thing in the world. And that's not exactly how Grace feels about it. And she feels guilty for not feeling that way. Do you think we should raise our children, our daughters and our sons, not to feel the sort of guilt feels that Grace feels to be more realistic about the way their lives are likely to unfold? Ooh, interesting. Um, you know, I do think Grace needs help. (laughs) So we have to start from a spot from there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I feel pretty strongly that things like work don't necessarily have to be your passion or, uh, make you happy all the time, or you shouldn't expect them to. And to expect that is setting yourself up for, um, for more lasting and more acute unhappiness. Um, and, you know, with parenting in particular, I think, I think we're getting more, more honest, um, with, you know, a bunch of think pieces and the like about the realities of parenting and the difficulties of parenting. And, you know, the fact that it, it, it can interrupt career ambitions and frustration over that is okay. Because I think the more that we talk about it and the more that we, uh, have dialogue around, uh, the, the challenges that come with child rearing and career choice, I think we'll be able to have more creative solutions around them as well. And we'll sort of see more flexible options. And I think we're starting to see those, Mm -hmm. those take shape a little bit. And I think the only way to do that is kind of to be more accepting of the actual problem. It's been interesting to me to see ways in which that conversation has played out. And one of the ones I've noticed is um, stand-up comedy. I feel, I mean, men, but especially women stand-up comics will be really honest about, you know, the mm-hmm. challenges of, of raising a family and the, and the joys. I mean, it's, it's not, I'm not saying it's, it's not a wonderful thing, but, but they, they sort of present, I think, a more realistic uh, view of it. And it seems to be, that seems to be a venue in which kind of, well, that's, it's allowed because you're making a joke. So it's okay to say that you don't adore every single thing that your kids do, you know? Yes. Yes. Do you have kids? I do. My kids are both grown though. And they're perfect. So, you know, (laughs) and every moment was a total joy, (laughs) no problems. (laughs) Um, yeah, no, that's true. I, I do. I think we all find a lot of catharsis and listening to comedy about, about child rearing, but, um, it's tough. (laughs) You live in Austin. Is that correct? Yes, and and the book is set in Dallas. How, how does the the Texas setting shape your characters and and make it different from if it were in sort of you know the New York corporate world or the the LA entertainment world? Yeah, I think it's one of those books that could have easily happened in New York or LA, and normally would have happened in New York or LA, um, and and those are great. But I was I was eager to write about. 
um, something in the South in particular, because I think that there's something so interesting about Southern women. I think that we are really good about using our sort of like Southern womanly wiles to say things that are pointed without being confrontational. Like we all know in the South, what bless your heart means. We can say that to a man and they know what we mean, but we haven't really made anyone uncomfortable. Um, and you know, so that's sort of one advantage of it at the other end of the spectrum, we are taught very much not to make people uncomfortable. We're kind of taught to please. We are, uh, you know, taught to be incessantly polite and, and that can work to our disadvantage because sometimes people, need to be made to feel uncomfortable and we need to be more comfortable with that. Uh, so it's sort of a double edged sword in the South. Uh, I lived in Dallas for a long time. I've worked in Dallas and, you know, I chose it over Austin because it's just a bigger city and was more likely to kind of have the corporate environment that I was looking for, for the setting. Uh, but I, I really did want to write about Southern women in particular. You, um, for those readers, listeners who are not from the South, uh, we use the phrase "bless your heart" in so many different ways. The one that I find the most amusing is that you're allowed to insult other people's children as long as you say that. Like you can say, "That's that's the ugliest baby I've ever seen." Bless his heart, you know, and then that makes it okay. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Just somehow we can do that. Um, there, there's a retrospective nature to this narrative in certain places, um, and I'll give an example from one of the lines. Uh, there's a line that says, "We would look back on this." moment later and wonder many things. We would look for signs and we would find them. Um, how do you decide, especially with a thriller, um, what what to tell us when, to, to build the mystery but without leaving us confused? Yeah, um, yes, it was uh, that line that you're talking about is one that I kind of fretted about over and over again because it is sort of breaking the rules of how we do narratives and thrillers and sort of gives an omniscience. That said, I could kind of I, I, I liked the suspense it added. Um, I think what what I did with my editor is when we went through sort of each of the women's stories, we sort of knew all the secrets that were at play and we picked some that felt like they needed to be parsed out slowly. Uh, and then we also knew that we wanted to really save some punch for the end. So it was kind of just trying to create balance in the narrative structure of, uh, laying the breadcrumbs and, also keeping keeping some surprises up our sleeves because I think I think originally when I drafted it everything was really had a lot of breadcrumbs a lot of support in it um, you know that's just not as fun by the end yeah. <laughs> the reader you write the, of, of the office in which these four women work the office was an environment perfectly engineered to breed distrust do you think that's generally true of corporate America or is it just this particular office? Ooh, uh, I, I mean, I can only speak to my experience. I feel like when I started working, you know, it's a real adult lesson. I think learning who you can trust in an office and who you can't and realizing that there are some people that you work with that it feels like you're friends with people because you're around them so much. Right. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have in your 
your best interest in mind. And there's always going to be money at stake in your work environment. There's always going to be promotions at stake. Um, and there's always going to be a bit of competition, uh, because not everyone can rise to the top or to the same level. Um, so I, I do think that there's an element of distrust, but of course I also believe that people can find their, their real friends in an office and, uh, that those relationships are really valuable. And of course there's a team aspect to running any company. Uh, but you just, you're always kind of thinking like, Oh, should I really say that at work? Should I, should I type that out in an email at work? How do I want to be strategic about what I'm disclosing into who and about how much of my personal life and that kind of thing. Right. Right. We like to end every episode of inside the writer's studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners some insight into writing and into Chandler Baker. So if you're ready, we will begin. What word do you love to work into your writing? I love to use totally, which is not a good one. I also work it out of my writing. (laughs) (laughs) What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Moist. Everybody says moist. It's amazing. (laughs) Where's your favorite place to write? Uh, on my couch. Where, where could you never write? Well, there's nowhere that I can't write that you've got to be able to write everywhere when you have toddlers. (laughs) (laughs) True. True. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Complete sentences. What was the first book you remember reading? The Hobbit. What are you reading now? Um, I am reading Miracle Creek by Angie Kim. What book would you like to have written? Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? I would like to write like a big um, cross-generational like light fantasy, not otherworld fantasy, uh, with a lot of family histories and overlapping timelines, like something just really giant in scope. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? That they pass my book along to their best friend. <laughs> this has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Chandler Baker, author of the novel The Whisper Network, which is available wherever books are sold. Chandler, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Inside the Writer Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. Coming up in December, we'll have a special guest for our 50th episode, and we'll be talking to Angie Cruz, author of Dominicana. Until then, may you read with wonder and write with passion. Mm-hmm.